Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Jonathan Lethem, and I'll be reading from Chronic City. A uh, scene from very early in the book where the narrator, Chase Instedman, a retired child actor, is about to have his first real encounter, extended encounter, with a new friend named Perkis Tooth. And at this point, just before what I'll read, uh, Chase and Perkis have just bumped into each other once in the offices of the Criterion Collection, the uh, upscale DVD reissue company, where Chase had a little bit of voiceover work, and Perkis was in the offices where Chase assumed he worked, as you'll see wrongly. Perkis's excuse for getting together with Chase is that he's told him he wants him to see a movie that Perkis has on a VHS tape called Echolalia. For a phone call so life-altering as mine to Susan Eldred, I ought to have had some fine reason. Yet here I was, dialing Criterion's receptionist later that afternoon, asking first for Perkis Tooth, and then, when she claimed no familiarity with that name, for Susan Eldred, spurred by nothing better than a cocktail of two parts whim and one part guilt. Manhattan's volunteer, that's me, I may as well admit it. Was I curious about Echolalia, or Morrison Groom's faked suicide, or Perkis Tooth's intensities and lulls, or the slippage in his right eye's gaze? Well, all of this and none of it, that's the only answer. Perhaps I already adored Perkis Tooth and already sensed that it was his friendship I required to usher me into the strange next phase of my being, to unmoor me from the curious eddy into which I'd drifted. How very soon after our first encounter I'd come to adore and need Perkis makes it awfully hard to know to what extent such feelings were inexplicably underway in Susan Eldred's office or that elevator. Your office mate, I said. They didn't recognize his name at the front desk. Maybe I heard it wrong. Perkis? Susan laughed. He doesn't work here. He told me he wrote your liner notes. He's written a couple, sure, she said, but he doesn't work here. He just comes up and occupies space sometimes. I'm sort of Perkis's babysitter. I don't always even notice him anymore. You saw how he can be. I hope he wasn't bothering you. No, I said, no. I was hoping to get in touch with him, actually. Susan Eldred gave me Perkis Tooth's number, then paused. I guess you must have recognized his name, she said. No, I told her. Well, she said, in fact, he's really quite an amazing critic. When I was at NYU, all my friends and I used to idolize him. When I first got the chance to hire him to do a liner note, I was quite in awe. It was shocking how young he was. It seemed like I'd grown up seeing his posters and stuff. Posters? Yes, he used to do this thing where he'd write these rants on posters and put them up all around Manhattan. These sort of brilliant critiques of things. Current events, media rumors, public art. They were a kind of public art, I guess. Everyone thought it was very mysterious and important. Then he got hired by Rolling Stone. They gave him this big column. He was sort of, I don't know, Hunter Thompson meets Pauline Kael for about five minutes, if that makes any sense. Sure, I said. Anyway, said Susan, the point is he sort of used up a lot of people's patience with certain kinds of paranoid stuff. 
I didn't really get it until I started working with him. I mean, I like Perkis a lot. I just don't want you to feel I've wasted your time or got you enmeshed in any schemes. People could be absurdly protective, as if a retired actor's hours were so precious. This was, I assume, second-hand affect, a leakage from Janice's otherworldly agendas. I was famously in love with a woman who had no time to spare, not even a breath, for she dwelled in a place beyond time or the reach of anyone's Rolodex, her every breath measured out of tanks of recycled air. If an astronaut made room for me on her schedule, my own prerogatives must be as crucial as an astronaut's. The opposite was true. Thank you, I said now. I'll be sure not to get enmeshed. Perkistooth was my neighbor, it turned out. His apartment was on East 84th Street, six blocks from mine, in one of those anonymous warrens tucked behind innocuous storefronts, buildings without lobbies, let alone doormen. The shop downstairs, Brandy's Piano Bar, was a corny-looking night spot I could have passed a thousand times without once noticing. Brandy's customers, please respect our neighbors, pleaded a small sign at the doorway, suggesting a whole tale of complaint calls to the police about noise and fumes. To live in Manhattan is to be persistently amazed at the worlds squirreled inside one another, the chaotic intricacy with which realms interleave, like those lines of television cable and fresh water and steam heat and outgoing sewage and telephone wire and whatever else, which cohabit in the same intestinal holes that pavement-demolishing workmen periodically wrench open to the daylight and to our passing, disturbed glances. We only pretend to live on something as orderly as a grid. Waiting for Perkis Tooth's door buzzer to sound and finding my way inside, I felt my interior map expand to allow for the reality of this place. The corridor floor's lumpy checkerboard mosaic, the cloying citrus of the superintendent's disinfectant oil, the bank of dented brass mailboxes, and the keening of a dog from behind an upstairs door, alerted to the buzzer and my scuffling boot heels. I have trouble believing anything exists until I know it bodily. Perkistooth lived in 1R, a half-level up, the building's rear. He widened his door just enough for me to slip inside, directly to what revealed itself to be his kitchen. Perkis, though barefoot, wore another antique-looking suit, green corduroy this time, the only formal thing my entry revealed. The place was a bohemian grotto. The kitchen, a kitchen only in the sense of having a sink and stove built in, and a sticker-laden refrigerator wedged into an alcove beside the bathroom door. Books filled the open cabinet spaces above the sink. The countertop was occupied with a CD player and hundreds of discs, in and out of jewel cases, many hand-labeled with a permanent marker. A hot water pipe whined. Beyond, the other rooms of the apartment were dim at midday, the windows draped. They likely only looked onto ventilation shafts, or a paved alley anyway. Then there were the broadsides Susan Eldred had described. Unframed, thumbtacked to every wall bare of bookshelves, in the kitchen and in the darkened rooms, were Perkis Tooth's famous posters, their paper yellowing, the lettering veering between a stylish cartoonist's or graffitiist's handmade font and the obsessive scrawl of an outsider artist, or a schizophrenic patient's pages reproduced in his doctor's monograph. I recognized them, remembered them. They'd been ubiquitous downtown a decade before, on construction site boards, over subway advertisements, element in the graphic cacophony of the city one gleans helplessly at the edges of vision. Perkis retreated to give me clearance to shut the door. 
stranded in the room's center in his suit and bare feet, palms defensively wide as if expecting something unsavory to be tossed his way, Perkis reminded me of an Edvard Munch painting I'd once seen, a self-portrait showing the painter wide-eyed and whiskered, shrunken within his clothes. Which is to say, again, that Perkis Tooth seemed older than his age. I'd never once see Perkis out of some part of a suit, even if it was only the pants, topped with a filthy white T-shirt. He never wore jeans. I'll get you the videotape, he said, as if I'd challenged him. Great, I said. Let me find it, he said. You can sit down. He pulled out a chair at his small, linoleum-topped table, like one you'd see in a diner. The chair matched the table, a dinette set, a collector's item. Perkis Tooth was nothing if not a collector. Here, he took a perfect, finished joint from where it waited in the lip of an ashtray, clamped it in his mouth and ignited the tip, then handed it to me unquestioningly. It takes one, I suppose, to know one. I drew on it while he went into the other room. When he returned with a VHS cassette and his sneakers and a balled-up pair of white socks, he accepted the joint from me and smoked an inch of it himself, intently. Do you want to get something to eat, he said. I haven't been out all day. He laced his high tops. Sure, I said. Out, for Perkis Tooth, I'd now begun to learn, wasn't usually far. He liked to feed at a glossy hamburger palace around the corner on 2nd Avenue, called Jackson Hole, a den of gleaming chrome and newer, faker versions of the linoleum table in his kitchen, lodged in chubby red vinyl booths. At four in the afternoon, we were pretty well alone there, the jukebox blaring hits to cover our bemused, befogged talk. It had been a while since I'd smoked pot. Everything was dawning strange, signals received through an atmosphere eddied with hesitations, the whole universe drifting untethered like Perkis Tooth's vagrant eyeball. The waitress seemed to know Perkis, but he didn't greet her or touch his menu. He asked for a cheeseburger deluxe and a Coca-Cola. Helpless, I dittoed his order. Perkis seemed to dwell in this place as he had at Criterion's offices, indifferently, obliquely, as if he'd been born there yet still hadn't taken notice of the place. In the middle of our meal, Perkis halted some rant about Werner Herzog or Marlon Brando or Morrison Groom to announce what he'd made of me so far. So, you've gotten to this point by being cute, haven't you, Chase? His spidery fingers, elbow-propped on the linoleum, kept the oozing, gory Jackson Hole burger aloft to mask his expression, and cantilevered far enough from his lap to protect those dapper threads. One eye fixed me while the other crawled, now seeming a scalpel in operation on my own face. You haven't changed, he said. You're like a dreamy child. That's the secret of your appeal. But they love you. They watch you like you're still on television. Who, I said. The rich people, he told me. The Manhattanites, you know who I mean. Yes, I said. You're supposed to be the saddest man in Manhattan, he said, because of the astronaut who can't come home. So, no surprise, Perkis was another one who knew me as Janice Trumbull's fiancé. My heart's distress was daily newspaper fodder. Yes, I loved Janice Trumbull, the American trapped in orbit with the Russians, the astronaut who couldn't come home. This, beyond my childhood TV stardom, was what anyone knew about me, though some, like Susan Eldred, were too polite to mention it. That's what everyone adores about you, said Perkis. I guess so. But I know your secret. I was startled. Did I have a secret? If I did, it was one of the things I'd misplaced in the last few years. 
I couldn't remember how I'd gotten from there to here, made the decisions that led from my child stardom to harmlessly dissipated Manhattan celebrity, nor how it was that I deserved the brave astronaut's love. I had trouble clearly recalling Janice. That was part of my sorrow. The day she launched for the space station, I must have undertaken to quit thinking of Janice, even while promising to keep a vigil for her here on Earth. I never dared tell anyone this fact. So if I had a secret, it was that I had conspired to forget my secret. Perkis eyed me slyly. Perhaps it was his policy to make this announcement to any new acquaintance, to see what they'd blurt out. Keep your eyes and ears open, he told me now. You're in a position to learn things. What things? Before I could ask, we were off again. Perkis's spiel encompassed Monty Hellman, Samina culture, Grill Marcus's lipstick traces, the mafia's blackmailing of J. Edgar Hoover over erotic secrets, Vladimir Mayakovsky and the Futurists, Chet Baker, Nothingism, the ruination Giuliani's administration had brought to the sacred squalor of Times Square, the genius of The Nuppet Show, Frederick Exley, Jacques Rivette's impossible-to-see 12-hour movie Out One, corruption of the arts by commerce generally, Slavo Zizek on Hitchcock, Franz Marplot on G.K. Chesterton, Norman Mailer on Muhammad Ali, Norman Mailer on graffiti and the space program, Brando as dissident icon, Brando as sexual saint, Brando as Napoleon in exile. Names I knew and didn't. Others I'd heard once and never troubled to wonder about. Mailer again and again, and Brando even more often. Perkis Tooth's primary idols seemed to be this robust and treacherous pair, which only made Perkis seem frailer and more harmless by contrast, without ballast in his pencil-legged suit. Maybe he ate Jackson Hole burgers in an attempt to burgeon himself, seeking girth in hopes of attracting the attention of Norman and Marlin, his chosen peers. He had the waitress refill his gallon-sized Coke, too. Then, as our afternoon turned to evening, washed it all down with black coffee. In our talk, marijuana confusion now gave way to caffeinated jags, like a cloud bank penetrated by buzzing airplanes. Did I read The New Yorker? This question had a dangerous urgency. It wasn't any one writer or article he was worried about, but the font. The meaning, embedded at a preconscious level by the look of the magazine, the seal, as he described it, that the typography and layout put on dialectical thought. According to Perkis, to read The New Yorker was to find that you always already agreed, not with The New Yorker, but, much more dismayingly, with yourself. I tried hard to understand. Apparently here was the paranoia Susan Eldred had warned me of. The New Yorker's font was controlling, perhaps assailing, Perkis Tooth's mind. To defend himself, he frequently retyped their articles and printed them out in simple courier, an attempt to dissolve the magazine's oppressive context. Once I'd enter his apartment to find him on his carpet with a pair of scissors, furiously slicing up and rearranging an issue of the magazine, trying to shatter its spell on his brain. So how, he once asked me, apropos of nothing, does a New Yorker writer become a New Yorker writer? The falsely casual so masking a pure anxiety. It wasn't a question with an answer. But I'm confused in this account, surely. Can we have discussed so much the very first time? Giuliani's auctioning of 42nd Street to Disney. Mailer on NASA as a bureaucracy stifling dreams. J. Edgar Hoover in the mafia's thrall, hyping reds, instilling self-patrolling fear in the American mind. In the midst of these variations, the theme was always ingeniously and excitingly retrieved. In short, some human freedom had been leveraged from view at the level of consciousness itself. 
Liberty had been narrowed, winnowed, amnesiaced. Perkis Tooth used this word without explaining. By it, he meant something like the mafia itself would do, a whack, a rub-out. Everything that mattered most was a victim in this perceptual murder plot. Further, always to blame was everyone when rounding up the suspects begin with yourself. Complicity, including his own, was Perkis Tooth's only doubtless conviction. The worst thing was to be sure you knew what you knew, the mistake the New Yorker's font induced. The horizon of everyday life was a mass daydream. Below it lay everything that mattered. By now, we'd paid for our burgers and returned to his apartment. At his dinette table, we sat and he strained some pot for seeds, then rolled another joint. The dope came out of a little plastic box marked with a laser-printed label reading Chronic in rainbow colors, a kind of brand name. We smoked the new joint relentlessly to a nub and went on talking, Perkis now free to gesticulate as he hadn't at Jackson Hole. Yet he never grew florid, never in all his ferment, hyperventilated or like some epileptic bit his tongue. The feverish words were delivered with a merciless cool. Like the cut of his suit, wrinkled though it might be, and the obsessively neat lettering on the VHS tape and his CDs. Perkis Tooth might have one crazy eye, but it served almost as a warning not to underestimate his scruples, how attentively he stayed on the good side of his listeners' skepticism, making those minute adjustments that were sanity's signature, the interpersonal real politic of persuasion. The eye was mad, and the rest of him was almost steely. Perkis rifled through his CDs to find a record he wished to play me, a record I didn't know. Peter Blegvad's Something Else is Working Harder. The song was an angry and incoherent blues, it sounded to me, gnarled with disgruntlement at those who get away with murder. Then, as if riled by the music, he turned and said, almost savagely, So, I'm not a rock critic, you know. Okay, I said. This was a point I found it easy enough to grant. People will say I am because I wrote for Rolling Stone, but I hardly ever write about music. In fact, the broadsides hung in his rooms seemed to be full of references to pop songs, but I hesitated to point out the contradiction. He seemed to read my mind. Even when I do, I don't use that language. Oh, I said. Those people, he said. The rock critics, I mean. Do you want to know what they really are? Oh, sure, I said. What are they? Super high-functioning autistics. Oh, I don't mean they're all diagnosed or anything, but I diagnose them that way. They've got Asperger's syndrome. I mean in the same sense that, say, David Byrne or Al Gore has it. They're brilliant, but they're social misfits. Uh, how do you know, I asked. As far as I knew, I'd never met anyone with Asperger's syndrome, or, for that matter, a rock critic, although I had once seen David Byrne at a party. Yet I'd heard enough already to find it odd hearing Perkis Tooth denouncing misfits. It's the way they talk, he said. He leaned in close to me and demonstrated his point as he spoke. They aspirate their vowels nearer to the front of their mouths. Wow, I said. Yes, and when you see them talking in groups, they do it even more. It's self-reinforcing. Rock critics gather for purposes of mutual consolation, Chase, though they never call it that. They believe they're experts. Perkis, whether he knew it or not, continued to aspirate his vowels at the front of his mouth as he made his case. They can't see the forest for the trees, he said. Self-reinforcing experts, I said, trying it on for size. Can't see the forest for the threes. I am by deepest instinct a mimic, 
Anyway, a VHS tape labeled Echolalia lay on the table between us. That's right, said Perkis seriously. Some of them even whistle when they speak. Whistle, I said. Exactly. Well, then, thank God we're not rock critics, I told him. You can say that again. He tongued the gum on another joint he'd been assembling, then inspected it for smoke worthiness, running it under his funny eye as if scanning a barcode. Satisfied, he ignited it. So, I'm self-medicating, he explained. I smoke grass because of the headaches. Migraine headaches, I asked. Cluster headaches, he said. It's a variant of migraine. One side of the head. With two fingers, he tapped his skull. Of course, it was his right side, the headaches gravitating toward the deviant eye. They're called cluster headaches, he said, because they come in runs, every day for a week or two at exactly the same time. Like a clock, like a rooster crowing. That's crazy, I said. I know, he said. Also, there's this visual effect, a blind spot on one side. Again, his right hand waved, like a blot in the center of my visual field. I thought of a riddle. What do you get when you cross a blind spot with a wandering eye? But we'd never once mentioned his eye, so I hung fire. The pot helps, I asked instead. The thing about a migraine-type experience, he said, is that it's like being only half alive. You find yourself walking through this tomb world. Everything gets far away and kind of dull and dead. Smoking pulls me back into the world. It restores my appetites for food and sex and conversation. Well, I had evidence of food and conversation. Perkis Tooth's appetites in sex were to remain mysterious to me for the time being. This was still the first of the innumerable afternoons and evenings I surrendered to Perkis's kitchen table, to his smoldering ashtray and pot of scorched coffee, to his ancient CD boombox which audibly whined as it spun in the silent gap between tracks, to our booth around the corner at Jackson Hole when a fierce craving for burgers and cola came over us as it often did. Soon enough, those days all blurred happily together, for in the disconsolate year of Janice's broken orbit, Perkis Tooth was probably my best friend. I suppose Perkis was the curiosity, I the curiosity seeker, but he surely added me to his collection as much as the reverse. To subscribe to the writer's block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.